Great to have you all here this morning. Um, if you can hear my voice, go ahead and find a seat and stand in front of it. And I am uh, so uh, grateful to have Kanan Hurst with us. Amen. Thank you, Kanan, and thank you, church. Wow, I, I love worshiping with you guys. Thanks for being here um, in the room. And um, if there's anyone joining us online, thanks for logging in. Uh, great to be with you all this morning. We have been studying the Gospel of Mark all year, uh, I think, basically all year. And, um, and so we are still in uh, Mark chapter 12 right now. Um, let me give you a little bit of uh, context for what is happening in this passage, and then we'll read the passage together. Um, at this point, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He arrived uh, a couple days before our passage, and that's Palm Sunday. That's the triumphal entry. People are shouting, you know, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're so excited that he's there. He comes in, he looks around, and then he leaves and goes and sleeps right outside of town. Next day, he comes back and he goes into the temple and he sees people who are um, doing business in the temple courts. That was worship-related business, just to be clear. It's like kind of family Christian bookstore, if anyone remembers that. Um, uh, so anyway, what they're doing there is for people who've traveled from a, a, a long ways off and couldn't carry their offerings with them, they're giving people an opportunity to purchase what they want to give as a sacrifice um, right there in the temple courts. And uh, Jesus is disturbed by this business, so he turns over tables, he makes a big scene, and then he leaves. Next day he comes back, and that's the day that we're on in our passage. And the leaders of the temple, sort of all the governing officials, come. Uh, they, they, you know, like moths to a flame, they gather around him and they begin grilling him with questions. Of course, their first question, which we looked at last week, is, by what authority are you doing this? Like, what gives you the right to storm in here and make a big scene in the temple? But that was just the first of a series of questions. And uh, I don't want to get you guys too excited, but there were four questions that they asked him in the temple courts. And uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about there, I'll connect that in just a second. So the passage we're going to hear from Mark chapter 12 is the, the second, third, and fourth of those four questions. Let's listen to the word of God together. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to trap him with his own words. When they came to him, uh, when they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and do not court anyone's favor because you show no reality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But he saw through their hypocrisy and said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought one and he said to them, whose image is this and whose inscription? They replied, Caesar's. Then Jesus said to them, 
Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, also came to him and asked, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, If a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, that man must marry the widow and father children for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first one married, and when he died, he had no children. The second married her and died without any children, and likewise the third. None of the seven had children. Finally, the woman died too. So in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Aren't you deceived for this reason? Because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now, One of the experts in the law came and heard them debating. When he saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The expert in the law said to him, That's true, teacher. You're right to say that he is one and that there is no one else besides him and to love him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered thoughtfully, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Then no one dared any longer to question him. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment, as we're quiet together, speak to us about your word. Give us ears to hear. Jesus, I wonder in each of our lives if you are waiting for that moment when we come to you with questions. Even if we mean to accuse you or trap you, you're waiting for that moment. So Lord, I I pray that this moment that you used to show your, your mission, your motives, to show what you're all about, Lord, I pray that it would capture our hearts as well. That we would see what you're about and love you for it. That we would join you in your mission. That's our longing, Lord. So speak to us through uh, the preaching of the word. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, gosh, it, uh, it takes Jesus less than one week to go from arriving hero to villain, right? I mean, this is midweek. It's maybe Tuesday or Wednesday of what we call Holy Week, Jesus' week in Jerusalem. And this is the turning point, you guys. These questions, this moment when they come to him. Of course, he's already made a scene in the temple, but when they come to him with their questions, his answers are what really drive the, the nail in, so to speak, in terms of his faith, that they were going to find a way to execute him. Like I said, they, uh, they ask him four questions in the temple. Now, this may not be that exciting to you, but it's incredibly exciting to me because as we've been studying Mark, I, I keep noticing Mark is telling us the stories of Jesus in sets of four. And every time I've noticed it, when I pan out and look at the whole group of the set of four, I'm seeing things that I had never seen in those passages before. I mean, each one of these questions and answers are, um, are profound in and of themselves. You have a question about government, a question about marriage, and a question about religion. Like, talk about hitting the biggies, right? Taxes, marriage, and, and religion. Like, you know, these are, these are the things not to bring up at a dinner party. Right? And that, that's what they bring up with Jesus. Each one is really interesting, but when we look at them all together, we see more. I mean, let, let me remind you of some of the sets of four that we've seen. In chapter two, um, you, we saw there's uh, four different times in chapter two, people see or hear Jesus do something surprising, offensive, and so they ask, why is he doing things the way he's doing? And the response when they ask presents Jesus as the Messiah. Um, later on in chapter 4, Jesus begins to speak to them in parables. Mark doesn't give us very many parables in the whole Gospel of Mark. There's maybe six or seven, depending on which ones you count, in the whole Gospel of Mark. But right there, we get four parables, and they explain what the kingdom of God is like. Right after that, you get four dramatic miracles that show that Jesus isn't merely just a, a, a healer or an exorcist. He's tapped into the power of God. He can calm storms. He can stop waves. He can drive out armies of demons. He can raise the dead. Just a couple weeks ago, we noticed that as he's approaching Jerusalem, four different Groups of people come up to him with desires. We called those the four wants. So, you know, we have the, the four whys, the four whats, the four wows, and the four wants. And I could not, for the life of me, come up with a W word for, uh, for today. So if you think of one, you could, you could help me. That'll, you know, when I, when I publish my, my best-selling book, um, the four Ws, I need that. So today, what do we have? We have four questions, four exams, four traps that they're trying to set for Jesus. And when we look at them together, the message that Jesus seems to be getting across is big and important. It shows us his mission, his motive for everything that he does. He's come as the proclaimer of the kingdom. That's what he's doing. But 
what does that mean? What does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so repent? I think we get to see some of what it means in these four traps. Okay, so what are the traps? Remember, the first one was his credentials. What, by what authority are you doing these things? That's what we looked at last week. Second, the question, it's a question about politics. This isn't just Republicans and Democrats who come up to him. This is like libertarians and socialists who come up to him and want to know, should we pay taxes or not? The, the Pharisees and the Herodians, I mean, they're on totally different sides of the issue. Is it right to pay taxes? How should politics work? Third, there's a question about marriage and family and resurrection. And finally, a question about which command is the greatest. It's a question about religion. And before I draw any sort of specific point out of this, can we just stop and say, Jesus is brilliant. I mean, each, these are the best religious minds of his day. These are philosophers and theologians. They are experts in the law, and they have come up with most of these questions intentionally to trap him, to get him to, to make a wrong step, to, to put his foot in his mouth so that they can have just cause to execute him. And Jesus navigates through each one. He doesn't just have the knowledge necessary. He certainly does. He has the wisdom necessary, and that's an important distinction. You guys, you can have all the knowledge in the world and be foolish. Wisdom is the ability to navigate life well. And Jesus navigates these traps really well. In almost every one, he turns it back on them. He asks them a question in response. You know, do you have a coin? Let me see a coin. You know, uh, uh, um, you know uh, do you... Do you not believe the power of God or the scriptures? You know, he asks a question back to them. The first one, the one we didn't read today, you know, John's baptism, was it from God or from men? He's always asking back. He, he wisely turns it back on them. So with each question, he shows us uh, a bigger picture. Now, what does the Bible say about wisdom? The Bible says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. That's what the, it's made explicit in Proverbs. It's also in the Psalms. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. In other words, if you want to be able to navigate life Jesus style, God's got to be in the right place in your life. That's, that's the beginning of wisdom. And when we look at each one of his answers, especially when we look at the four together, we see that he is answering the questions simply by putting God in the right place in each question. They want him to talk about taxes. They want him to talk about, about um, uh, marriage. They want him to talk about the commandments. And he says, let's first bring into focus the big picture. Like, what does God have to do with this? It seems obvious that, that he would do that, and it seems obvious that they would know how to do that. But we are capable, even in a question about the commandments in the Bible, we are capable of zeroing in and keeping our eyes on the ground and missing the bigger picture. And that, that's what Jesus allows us to see here. 
the big picture. L let me give you um, a bit of what I mean here. The first question, which we didn't read today, is by what authority are you doing these things? Rather than answering, he tells them the story of this owner of a vineyard, right? And the, and the vineyard goes away and hires people to work the vineyard. And then when he sends people to, to get, you know, the produce of the vineyard, the tenants that he's hired, they don't want to give any away. They want to keep it all for themselves. So over and over again, um, they, they beat and abuse and send away the, the, the servants that the owner has sent empty-handed. And so finally, the owner sends his son, thinking maybe they'll respect my son. Now, that in and of itself may not sound like he's putting it in God's scale, but all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the vineyard in so many different places represents the people of God. So whenever you see a discussion of a vineyard, a poem about a vineyard, that's usually God talking about his people whom he loves. In other words, they're asking by what authority, and he says, remember, all of these people belong to God. And he, he challenges them to think about what Jesus is doing from a perspective of God's ownership of it all. That's what he does in the first question. Well, how does he do it in the second question? This question about taxes, it is a doozy. It's a challenging one. This, um, you know, I've already hinted at it, but this still divides us politically, doesn't it? How much right does the government have to tax us? How much can they tax us? Do we think that their use of, of tax revenue is good, et cetera, et cetera? You know, what are, their, what are, what are, what are they going to use it for? Hmm. That still divides us. Your opinion about those questions probably determines how you vote every two years or every four years. However Jesus answers the question, if he just answers the question, He's going to make someone mad, and they're doing that on purpose. I mean, there they are, bright red and bright blue, and they give him two options. Are you going to be red or blue on this one? And instead, he navigates around it. If Jesus says it's right to pay the tax, the faithful Jews can accuse him of kowtowing to Rome. Oh, you're just here as a as, you know, representing Rome. If Jesus says, no, it's not right to pay the tax, they can just turn him into the Romans. Hey, this guy is leading a group of people and he doesn't want to pay the tax. Arrest him, take him away. But Jesus fears God. He answers the question from the perspective of God owning and controlling everything, even who is in the place of government. His answer is more sneaky than you realize. So here's the deal with this tax, all right, especially when it comes to a denarius. That's the, that's the coin that he, um, that he asks for. This is a fairly recent tax for the Jews in Jerusalem. It's only about 25 years old that, that uh, the Romans started taxing the people, and it's been majorly um, divisive for the people. In fact, that's why there are zealots out in the out in the desert, forming militias, getting ready to try to fight to overthrow Rome. This is a huge issue. But the Romans would, you know, they, they had filtered the economy, they had spread out into the economy these coins, and then they were asking for those coins back, because, you know, that's, that's the currency that they're using. Now, if someone was really, really um, 
militant about this, they wouldn't even have a denarius in their possession. That would be a way to get out of the tax. So when Jesus says, give me a coin, and they pull one out of their pocket, they're actually kind of caught. Oh, here we go. Yeah, I did it. I found it, you know. like but He catches them right there. But then he looks at the coin, and his, even what he does with the, with the coin is sneaky because, of course, Caesar's face, just like we have president faces on our coins, Caesar's face is on the coin. But what it, the inscription on the coin announces Caesar as God. It calls Caesar the son of God. Whose face is on this? Caesar's. Okay, we'll give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but give to God what's God's. You know what he's saying there? Everything is God's, you guys. He, he has put Caesar in his place with one sentence. Caesar's power and control, his governmental authority, is limited by God's ownership. And he's gotten out of the tough question, of course. In Jesus' day and right now, God is in charge. Be at peace. So he escapes the tax question, and so they aim to trip him up with theology. All right, you dealt with politics fine, but you know now some now it's like some hardcore Baptists and hardcore Presbyterians come and they want to ask him about infant baptism. You know, like, all right, we'll trick him here. You know, if, if he answers this way or that way, somebody will be mad at him. So the question for them is about resurrection. There's this group of teachers called the Sadducees. Um, they did not last for very long, a short period of history, but they did not believe in the resurrection. They looked at specifically the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in that, they did not see evidence that there was sort of a, a, an afterlife. They viewed eternal life as happening through your children, that the, as the generations continue, that's your, your eternal life. As, you know, as our, as our family names, as our lines continue, that's what the Sadducees thought. And so the Sadducees, they, they put a lot of stock in this law that Moses gives that when um, a man and woman were married and the man dies before they've had any kids, it was the brother's responsibility to marry her and to have kids with her frankly, in order to continue his dead brother's family line. Now, this sounds maybe archaic or brutish to our ears where, you know, like we, we have relatively equal rights and, and uh, uh, you know, like marrying my brother's wife, like what are you talking about? But we have to remember that in 2500 BC when Moses is writing these laws or when God's giving these laws, if, so, if, if a woman's husband died, she was utterly without protection, and usually she was regarded as having some type of curse, especially if she hadn't, have, hadn't had children. Therefore, this law is meant to protect these women. It's meant to keep them safe. It's meant to, to give them stability. But these guys say, that law disproves resurrection. After all, if, uh, you know, if the, uh, uh, seven brothers all marry a woman and none of them are able to have children, in the resurrection, that would just be silly. They wouldn't be able to figure out who should be married to who. You know, they think that they've found the absurd end of that idea about resurrection. And Jesus says, do you guys 
you, you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God. Let's look at this from God's perspective. And so what does he do? He says in the, in the resurrection, there's, there's, no, there's no marriage the way we think of it now in the resurrection. Marriage now is a preview of that reality. That's what it is. In fact, Jesus' followers later on will develop this idea when Paul writes about marriage in the book of Ephesians. He'll say marriage is a great mystery. It represents Christ and his church. All marriage right now is at its best is supposed to preview the type of relationship that we will have with God. That will be utterly fulfilling and render marriage as we understand it unnecessary. Jesus says that's what happens in the resurrection. And oh, by the way, in the, in the most important passage of the most important books for you Sadducees, God introduces himself to Moses in the burning bush and says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all guys who were dead by the time of Moses. Jesus says, look at the verbs. I am currently their God. In other words, they're alive in some sense. God, he is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Jesus goes right after their doubts. He presents marriage as a preview of the life to come. And that brings us to the last question. In, in fairness, this last guy, he's, he's not trying to trap Jesus, all right? I've, I've set it up like everyone's trying to trap Jesus. This last guy seems to genuinely respect Jesus. He's been hanging back. He's listened to all of Jesus' answers. And he's like, oh, I need some advice from this guy. <laughs> and so he asks him, what's the greatest command? Like, give me, give me something to hang my hat on that will make all the rest of the, all these rules make sense. All right, help me prioritize them. And so Jesus answers his question directly. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And of course, this is a famous passage. Jesus says, the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the crowd all around Jesus probably would have agreed with his answers, but there would be a lot of weight on this question. Think about it. In a very religious community, you get focused on certain things, right? I mean, if you haven't experienced this, you know about it. So this group of people, the people in Jerusalem in the days of Jesus, they're incredibly focused on the Sabbath. They have tons of rules, tons of, of guidelines to make sure that everyone can obey the Sabbath perfectly. They have tons of rules about idolatry or, or, or about not using uh, God's name improperly. In fact, they have a whole way of talking about God so that they can protect themselves from, from speaking of God improperly. Of course, just the day before this, Jesus is in the temple turning over the tables, right? They have all sorts of things set up to allow people to offer sacrifices from wherever they come from. They have things that they are fixated on that, hey, if we can just maintain these things in their minds, that's holding the center and everything else will hold in place. And Jesus comes in and says, all of these don'ts, 
They're just getting at the big do. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And I think when we look at that question at the end, the fourth question, and the answer about the owner of the vineyard at the beginning, all of these things start to make sense. Friends, we can get really divided and confused when we're talking about politics or about how relationships should work or even about what a church should be focused on, right? We can, we can get really turned around on each other. But when we keep the first answer and the last answer connected, here's what we see. In the first answer, Jesus tells a story that if you look at it from Jesus' perspective, the tenants of the vineyard seem really naive, dumb even. Like, do they really think that by committing a crime, they're going to get to keep the owner's vineyard? Yeah, okay, they're naive. But also you could look at it from the other perspective and say, the owner of that vineyard is really naive. He has sent servant after servant after servant, and they've all been abused. And so he says, I know, I'll send my son and put his son in grave danger. Why? Well, if we think about the motive of God to send Jesus, we begin to understand what God's after is you, a relationship with you, your love for him. That's what he's after. You're his vineyard. And he's willing to suffer a great cost in order to get that. That's the reason he came. And so now when we get to the greatest commandment, we get Jesus, Jesus has his chance to say, here it is. Here's the whole goal of everything that I'm doing. It's so that you could love God with your whole self. Regardless of how you vote or what's happened in your marriage life. You can love God with every part of you. It's all his. That's the point of Jesus' work. He takes these stories, these questions, these challenges, and turns them into a chance to talk about his big purpose. And I know it's basic, you guys. But we get confused all the time. We get fixated on things. You get fixated on, on having enough work to, to pay your bills or, or pursuing that next promotion or, or what's going on in your kids' lives or what's going on in your, in your parents' lives or what's going on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We get fixated on that stuff. And we, we, what a gift to have this reminder. The 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 best theological minds that Jerusalem could offer. And Jesus says, the point of all of this is that you would have a living, loving relationship with the God of the universe. And I'm here to offer it to you. That's what he says. If we look at it, everything from that perspective, perhaps it starts making sense. So the father, he wasn't naive in sending his son to the vineyard. He wasn't foolish. He knew that's what would happen. And that was the way for us to be able to res be restored back in love to him. Pray with me.
Lord, each one of these things uh, can produce a lot of stress for us. Uh, credentials. Do I have what it takes? Uh, do I have a right to speak in this situation? Does Jesus have a right to do what, what I think he wants to do in this situation or that? Lord, government. We get so turned around. We yell at each other. We, we rebuke each other. We divide. Marriage, Lord, such joy and pain that isn't present in marriage. And religion, Lord. Which commandments should we value the most? In all of it, Lord, in every part of it, you are beckoning us to yourself. And I pray that we would answer the call today. That through the offer of your body and your blood, through, through your death in our place, we would be restored in full love to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, church, here it is. The meal that reminds us that Jesus has made a way for us to love God with all of ourselves. We were divided in many different ways. And in his body being divided for us, we're restored. We were confused. And he straightened us out. He gave all for us so that we could give all to him. So I'm going to ask you some questions. The answers will be on the board if you don't remember. Church, is the Father with us? Is Christ among us? Yes. Is the Spirit here? Yes. This is our God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are his people. We are his people. So lift up your hearts. Give thanks to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Holy, holy, holy Lord. God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Church, on the same night that he was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks, and he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus is Lord, and this is the feast of victory. The Lamb who is slain is begun his reign. Christ is alive forever. We are because he is. We're one body. We share one 
So, draw near with faith. Amen.